All right, joining me today, former White Sox pitcher, a three-time All-Star, 1993 Cy Young Award winner, and talented musician Jack McDowell. Thank you for joining me. All right. Good to be here. What's up? So uh, I came across uh, your seventh inning stretch parody song on Facebook uh, that calls out the metrics nerds and how they're ruining the game. If you haven't heard it, here it is. Obviously, baseball is moving into more of like a data-driven uh, uh, direction. So I'll give you the floor. What's your biggest beef uh, with analytics and, and metric? Well, that stuff is okay to use in certain situations, but they're absolutely dictating every single thing in baseball with metrics. Number one, the draft. You know why they've lowered the draft numbers? Think about think about it. If you go back and look at how many Hall of Famers were drafted in the 30th round, the 35th round. Okay, and why does baseball have a five-level minor league system that nobody else has? No other professional sports. Because baseball is a sport of progression and getting better and learning things and moving forward. And that's why baseball had been that. Now the metrics guys feel that they can just predetermine who the big leaguers are going to be and they'll just draft them out of high school and college, which is absolutely wrong and ridiculous. It's not true. That's the first part of it that's a joke. Now, everything they're teaching about the game, all that any pitcher cares about is spin rate and velocity. And that has nothing to do with anything. It's control and being smart as a pitcher to be able to know what adjustment to do when a guy swings at an inside pitch. Now, do you go with a fastball outside or do you do your breaking ball? What do you do next? It's being smart like that. That is not predetermined, okay? And with pitching, they're predetermining innings pitch and pitch counts, as we saw, which is absolutely ridiculous. When you take a guy out of the World Series, we're going to take him out. Uh, well, the way you're supposed to come out of games if the other team shows your manager that you better get him out of here because we're kicking his butt. <laughs> okay. so that's just three or four things, and there's a million that I could talk about with metrics, why, they're, why it's incorrectly being done. So then kind of going along that, I'm interested in what you think of like a player like a Yasmani Grandal, who like the analytics people love him because he walks a lot, gets on base, but he strikes out a lot, doesn't hit for a high average. So uh, like if you were running a team, what are you looking for in a player? Well, you just look for guys that are going to give what they have every time out there in the game. It ain't just about superstar players, okay? Your you're, you're stud players who are studs all the time, they're going to do it. To be a winning team, you have to surround them with guys that are going to do what they do all the time, not just be terrible for two weeks and then great game and this. Now, you want guys to be consistent in the game. So that's the thing that I would look for if I was putting a team together. You want to look for consistency. 
Because that's, you know, it ain't just superstardom that wins baseball games, man. It's just end results. It's the same thing. Exit velocity when you're hitting. Okay, we well, just lined out to the shortstop with a 110-mile-an-hour line drive. Right. And then your next at bat, you jammed yourself with guy on second and third, and your launch angle was at 90 degrees, but it flipped over and happened to fall behind the infield for two RBIs, and your exit velocity was 70 miles an hour. Does that really matter? No. End results matter. The end result of baseball is what really matters. So I kind of want to go back to a point you mentioned earlier where pitchers don't go very deep into games a day because of pitch count. And you were a guy that went deep into games a long time. You led the uh, major leagues uh, in complete games uh, three separate times. So was there a strategy for you uh, when you were pitching to be able to go deep into a game, or was it just kind of chuck it and see how long uh, I, I can last? Well, you just, you just kind of competed, you know, and went after it. I ended up in our strike zone compared to the National League strike zone back in the day. Our strike zone in the American League was a lot smaller. So we were just pitched to contact. You know, hey, I'm going to make this guy hit this ball, so I'm going to throw it. You know, you had to have a little command within a smaller zone and be smart as to when you're going to throw your off speed, when you're going to back up your off speed or not. That's the kind of stuff that got you forward with pitching in that era. And my thought on that all is when pitch counts started and they started putting it in on everybody and making it a big deal, and now it's just what they predetermine every pitcher by a pitch count, not what's actually happening in the game. But the reality of it, if you've ever been a pitcher, if anyone has ever been a pitcher, you know this. You're out there, you're working hard on your body. But there's some games when you're online and everything's good, you can throw 150 pitches and wake up the next day and your arm and body feel great because you were in line and everything was good, okay? Then there's some times when the mound may be a little weird and, you know, it's a weird step down. It's some mound that you're not used to because it's another field. And you wait, you know, and then you get beat up a little bit and you only threw two innings. You wake up the next day and you feel like you got – knocked out in the alley and got kicked by 10 guys. And that is real. That's not metrics. That is really how it goes. But because they're not allowing guys to pitch when they're going good, they aren't allowing them to build up their strength to be able to deal with that bad start. And that's why there's way more injuries now. And with metrics being everything, how are they not measuring – that there's way more injuries now, yet these guys are not throwing as much as the guys back 15, 20 years ago. Right. It's like I, metrics versus reality. That's what frustrates us. I think a lot of it, too, you see, is guys are throwing a lot harder now where it's not even so much about location as it is just throwing as hard as you can, which I think well, is – That also sounds good, but that is technology change. Yeah. They are now measuring fastballs out of the hand. Whereas back in our day, it was as it crossed the plate. And if you think about back in our day, there was the ray gun and the jugs gun. And if you threw a pitch up high, the jugs gun would rate it four or five miles an hour faster than the ray gun. If you threw it knee high and you had two guns going on it, the ray gun would rate it four or five miles an hour faster than the jugs gun. And, so, and that was as it crossed the plate. 
So you don't think that you think everyone's just throwing a hundred now. No, okay, you know what? I coached in pro ball. I saw guys that on their metrics were, oh, sitting at 98, throwing 101. And I actually, you know, go out there and stand in to see how it looked throwing. It didn't look any different than anybody I faced in spring training. You know, it's all the same stuff. And if you, you can even go look at videos. Go look at videos. Go look at, like, you know, Noel Ryan, Randy Johnson, Brett Saberhagen, all the guys just threw gas, you know, and back in the day. And you look at them throwing hard. It's like, they it wasn't any different than what the guys are doing now. No different. And they had better command and better off speed. That's, so uh, another kind of pitching point that MLB is shifting towards, that I know AAA is going to the automated strike zone. So as a pitcher, <laughs> have you been a fan of an automated strike zone, or would you kind of like the catcher being able to, like, steal a couple strikes, like framing it here or there? No, I'm not, I'm not into the stealing strikes framing it. I'm into the reality of the strike zone. The thing is, the robo-umps are not the real strike zone. They're not – if you saw some of the posts on social media and around – that people put out from the Atlanta League Robo thing, it's unbelievable. And here's the one thing I always said, hey, if they have a Robo ump, you know what's going to be weird? The breaking pitches for hitters, it's going to change their entire thought process and approach. Because if you think about it, you have an electronic zone, okay? Now, all you got to do is nip it, so if you have a good slider that just goes, whoa, and just nips the corner, boom, and the catcher who's the catcher is three feet behind the plate and the ball's moving this way, that ball's going to be like that far outside, yet, oh, it's a strike. And think about a knee-high strike zone that starts at the front of the plate, and all you have to do is your curveball just needs to nip it. You can bounce a curveball and they'll call it a strike. And I said that before they started doing it, and I saw it happen in the Atlantic League a few times where that is now called a strike. I'm like, there it is. There's the, there's the robo strike zone that, you know, that's not, not really what the strike zone is. You know, we kind of all knew what it was, but right. I don't know why they're doing that. And once again, analytics. Analyze reality. Go look. Go look at that and go, wait a minute. We don't want to do that. And here's the other thing that I worry about. With as much cheating that has gone on and stealing signs and all the technology and this and that, you don't think in a home game that somebody <laughs> at the home game can't totally utilize the technology? Oh, wait, we got second and third, two strikes. Guess what? Strike. Oh, hey, hey, whatever. You don't think that they can well, cheat? I, with I mean, you can get you can get your phone – and your computer locked in from India to the United States. Someone breaking into your stuff. You're wait a minute. If they can do that technologically, you don't think that the guy sitting in the upper deck can't do that with the, the home plate umpire thing? <laughs> I worry about that. I want real? I like real games and real stuff. Yeah, that, that mean that that makes sense. Um... So kind of going with the, the cheating, too. It's not even necessarily a cheating issue, but obviously, like, the foreign substances on the ball and, like, the sticky stuff was a big storyline last year, and they were cracking down on that. So uh, I know some pitchers like Tyler Glass now were calling it out because they said it changed the way they had to throw it, and they thought it was, like, the cause of arm injuries. Um, so a two-prong question, I guess. Uh, what did you think of the rule? And back in your day, did you ever, like, use any uh, uh, Vaseline on the ball or whatever? Uh, 
I, I couldn't use anything because my secondary pitch was my split finger. And what I needed that to do was to slip out of my fingers. So I never, and I tell people this all the time, you can go back and look at every single game I ever pitched in my entire life, and I never even touched a rosin bat pitch. I didn't worry about, oh, I need to have the tighter. I didn't use pine tar like a lot of guys did. And you can go back and look. I have some pictures that I went and looked up of Tony Pena having pine tar on his glove. And I saw that when Jeff Torborg was our manager, and I was sitting in there, and Dennis Martinez, who ended up being a teammate of mine, so I'm not you know, bragging on these guys and getting mad at them, but I just saw it. Caught the ball, swiped his fingers on the pine tar, grabbed the ball, and threw it back. And when I go out there to pitch, I'm looking and goes, oh, it's got like finger outlines of pine tar. Right. There was that. No, Ryan used to cut the ball all the time in the same exact spot. If I pitched against him a couple times, I'd have to go out there in between innings and go, yeah, get out of here. Throw this ball out. The umpires would never do anything. Oh, no, it's Nolan Ryan. He's towards the end of his career. We're not going to you know, do this. Really? We're not going to do You're just going to let him keep doing this? Right. You know? And it was all to get extra movement on the ball. But I didn't want fake movement. I wanted to know where my pitch was going. I didn't want to, like, plan and say, oh, I'm going to cut the ball, and it's going to move more. Then all of a sudden it doesn't on that throw, and you just threw it down the middle and got crushed. I'd rather have a good feel and know what you're doing by yourself rather than having stuff on there that you think is going to help you. Yeah. So if it was implemented like midseason back when you were playing, how do you think – because I know there was a lot of pushback this year from it, from the guys in your era. How do you think that would have been uh, received had they implemented a rule change like that midway through the year? Well, well, you weren't allowed to do the pine tar thing, but guys did. I mean, you saw it happen. And who was the Yankees pitcher – it was a, a little while back. We had it on his neck the one time. A big Michael Pena, I his think. Neck. Yeah. Yeah. And you look, one of the things that a lot of the guys have done, and this wasn't really illegal, but they learned how to do it, was they would put stuff on their forearm and then put the chalk on there, and it would get sticky. And so they just go, boom, now you got it on there. But it wasn't really illegal because all it was was, no, I, I, I didn't want to get to it. It was just. Sun lotion. I didn't want to get burnt, so I put sun lotion on there. Then you hit it with the hit it with that the rosin bag, and it gets sticky. And so that was the thing that happened. And you can tell you can. It's so funny to watch because you go back and you know, see. Yeah, oh, I catches the ball, and he goes there. Well, guess what? Breaking ball's coming, guys. That should have been figured out. Yeah. Guy goes to his forearm, and breaking ball's coming. He's not throwing a fastball. He is throwing that breaking ball. You should be able to see that and figure it out. That is. That's why I love baseball. I feel like I know so much about the game, yet it ain't predetermined. It is pitch-to-pitch adjustment, and that's one of them. Hey, if you see stuff like that, guess what? It's like knowing the guy's going to throw a breaking ball. Okay, figure it out and, you know, go sit on that one. So, obviously, MLB, they're in a lockout right now, uh, and you were playing during one of the last big lockouts. And a little different because that one was midway through the year. But when you were playing and that happened, did it change the way you thought of baseball or the owners in general? And what do you think some of the long-term ramifications could be uh, from this uh, current situation? Well, I haven't really locked into what is going back and forth between the two sides that they're working on right now. 
Um, when we did it, one of the big things that was happening was it was right before 1994 was right before the MLB network channel was coming on and you knew that was going to be a worldwide huge moneymaker. And so what they wanted to do, the owners really wanted to have a salary cap to stop guys from earning the real money that was made in the game and let them make huge, huge money worldwide without raising salaries. Uh, you know, that's just part of the deal. I look at it now, what athletes make now, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, what are we, what are we fighting about when you're, you know, guys out there throwing half the innings I used to throw and making more money in one year than we made in our whole career. But I felt bad about that too, having to play with, say, Carlton Fisk, who was at the end of his career and our thing kept jumping up a little bit and I was one of the better players. So I would get close to the top money, you know, $3 million, $4 million, $5 million. He was like $5 million. And I remember being in a meeting, uh, a players association meeting and they told us, okay, you know, the highest salaries now are right around $5 million, but look at this. The money made is, is, is here and here, the salaries have gone down. It should be up to $10 million right now. We all just looked at each other and said, what are you talking about? $10 million a year? Never going to go to $10 million a year. And like two years later, it went to $10 million a year. The White Sox got Albert Bell for the first $10 million. We're like, wow, and it's just been blowing up in every sport. So I'm not sure what the fights are about now. You know, I haven't really looked into it to, wait a minute, what's going on? What are they trying to do now? And, you know, if they do – a salary cap, is that really going to hurt everybody? I don't think so. You know, unless it's a real low salary cap and everyone loses, you know, half their money, then that would be weird. But I just, I don't think that's going to happen. So I'm not sure. But if I was the Players Association, if I was in that, you want to know the push that I would make? I would say, hey, listen, you're stopping the minor leagues. You're stopping the draft. And that's all because they were getting frustrated that they were paid such low money. Well, guess what? Let's take away $2 million off of each team and fire it down to the minor league dudes to make money. It's not going to be tons of money that you need to do, you know. I mean, $2 million is $2 million, but in billion-dollar companies, that's not huge. Right. So I look at that and I go, why keep the minor leagues? Keep the minor leagues and keep baseball the way it is because that's the reality of it. You can't predict who's going to be the studs, man. You know, that's probably one of the things you've read a million times. Look at how many number one overall picks never even made it, you know, and stuff like that. How many first-rounders didn't make it? I mean, it's, that's, that just happens. That's baseball. That is baseball. When that lockout happened, you guys had one of the better uh, teams in the league that year. So was it frustrating for you guys? I mean, obviously I would think so because you guys were in first place at the time. And do you think had that season played out, uh, what do you think realistically the White Sox World Series chances were? Uh, that no, we year? had a good shot. We had a real good shot. If you go look, that season, the year after I won the Cy Young, they took me to my third straight. Ugh. You know, wouldn't give me, wouldn't give me to, they took me to arbitration three straight years. I don't know if any player has ever been taken. They wouldn't give me a one-year deal. They wouldn't offer me a multi-year deal. I was going to be a free agent after that season. Really wanted to stay with the Sox. That's where I started. And we grew as a young team and finally were able to get by the Oakland A's, who were the veteran steroid team of the era. 
And, you know, we were in the, we were in the American League West. And so we finally got there, made the playoffs in 93. I got knocked around by Toronto, and that's why we didn't do it. But, they, I mean, that was my Cy Young award. They won five games against me that year. Beat me three times during the season and twice in the playoffs. So they had, you know, for some reason they had me. Like to know what they had going on too, but who knows? And so that went on. I started the season horrendously in '94. I was two and seven with a seven something ERA to start the season. And you go back and look. I ended up ten and nine with like a three nine. So, I mean, think about the rest of those games. I was throwing like a 1-1-5 ERA and just dominating. And me and Alex Fernandez, who were the number one and two pitchers, we didn't have a good start. But Jason Bray and Wilson Alvarez both made the all-star team. And by the end of the season, our two all-stars were throwing good, our three and four pitchers. Then me and Alex were killing it. We were doing super good at the end. So, I'm looking going, man, we got our pitching as good as you want it. So that would have been a very cool thing to get back in. Plus, 1993, the year before, where we got beat by Toronto, was our first playoff experience. So, you know, you get better with stuff like that. You learn, you go, okay, you know, maybe we were a little over anxious. I was too worried. I was this, I was that. Now you just go do what you need to do. That would have helped that season definitely for us. But we were, we were on fire. Now I hear about it. it would have been Montreal and, right. you know, the – had some dudes, absolutely, but we were as good as you could be at that time. So, and the thing is, you can't predict what's going to happen. You know, you can guess, but you cannot predict. So, you mentioned going into arbitration three years in a row. Do you, what, do you, what do you think the reason was that they didn't want to bring you back? Because you had, like like you said, like three pretty stellar, like three, three all-star seasons in a row. So, do you think there was a reason that you kept going to arbitration or just, just the way baseball business, I guess? I, you know what? I just think they weren't they weren't a fan of mine and weren't interested in giving me any multi-year deals and so that you know coming up into free agency they didn't want to do that I I had my whole career I had a an arthritic hip and they everyone kind of expected that just one year I'll just blow out and be done but you know I ended up pitching for a long time with it and nothing happened and so maybe that was part of it. I don't know. But they never even gave me a single-year deal. You know, taking me to arbitration, what I think the reason was is because I was one of the top-rated pitchers in those years, they didn't want to just give me the money. So everybody else would go, okay, well, he's making that. I'm making this, 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 which is what people do. They went to arbitration. So they didn't get blamed for the price given. Right. I think that might have been part of it, too. So let me ask you, during your Cy Young season, in the middle of that year, is that something like that's in the back of your mind where you're like, hey, I'm having a good year, I kind of have a shot at this, or are you not really focused on, like, a side award? Because, like, if you're well, – yeah. I would say that individual stuff, it's, it's cool, but it also doesn't mean anything. Right. The only thing that means anything in sports is championships. Because individual stuff, oh, that's great. I won the Cy Young. Guess what? I won the Cy Young, and I lost 10 games. You know? And, and I didn't throw 35 straight perfect games. And had I thrown 35 straight perfect games, even if I threw 50 balls during every one of those games, you know, it was a perfect game. But guess what? 
I didn't need to throw 50 balls. I could have been better than that. Individuality can always be better in sports. The only one where when you get done, you go, boom, we did it. We did it. We can't do anything else. We did the highest thing you can possibly do, which is win the championship. So that's what I was in for all the time. Right. That may, which makes sense. Kind of cycling back, a couple more uh, questions here. Cycling back to the uh, number of stuff. You put, that's kind of another debate they have among like, analytics or not. Did you put big, much stock into the win-loss record as a pitcher? And do you think that's a meaningful pitching stat? Or, you know, because sometimes you look at like a Jacob deGrom nowadays, uh, his win-loss record isn't great, and he's been one of the better pitchers in baseball over the past couple of years. Well, you, you, back in the day, we threw against the other pitcher. So whoever won, you know, we weren't throwing five innings and six innings. We were throwing seven, eight, nine innings. So if you got to win, it's because you beat the other team and the other guy. You did better. And so it was a little more important back then and a little more realistic. But they say, you know, the analytics guys say, oh, wins don't mean nothing. Yes, it does. It's end result. Right. End results is to win a game. I went and looked up my numbers um, just, you know, as I had my, my children asking me, oh, you know, hey, where were you at? Like as a player, how were you? And I went back and looked at all my during the years just to check out the numbers and all that stuff. And I had so many blown saves. My blown save versus game save percentage was in the 70s, whereas every closer's percentage usually in the 90s, but mine was in the 70s. I had a lot more wins that could have happened. Plus, I had no decisions that they pulled me out of games, and I looked and I had about 15 or 20 of them where I hadn't given up a run or more than one run in seven, eight, nine innings. And they take you out, and then, you know, I'm like, go wow. So I threw pretty good. I mean, I was there competing all the time. I didn't get those wins. Right. You know, you just, that's it. Part of it, part of it is that. It's the same thing. They, they, they don't like RBIs anymore. They think that's not good. <laughs> How is an RBI not real? But then, as they looked, this past year, finally they started talking about, wow, his, his batting average with runners in scoring position is really low this year. Okay, you have to say that, and you can't just say RBIs, because that's what RBIs are, guys. You know, And that's the same thing with strikeouts. Strikeouts are extremely overrated. Okay, Who cares? what an out is an out is an out a fly out on two pitches or a strikeout on five pitches who cares the only strikeouts that matter are in situations where guys on third with less than two outs and this guy puts it in play and just hits it at all a run scores that is an important strikeout with strikeouts they never talk about that being overrated they think that's the greatest thing ever right. and it's just it's not. It doesn't matter. End results, man. It's all about end results. It ain't about individual little analysis stuff. So it's kind of baseball nerd question from me, but over the course of your career, toughest hitter you ever faced? Someone that you thought like had your number throughout throughout the year? Or toughest out, I guess. Well, I think, I think if I go back and look at Robbie Alomar, he used to crush me. He used to get me every time always one step ahead of me where I was going to go. Like, ooh, I got him set up now. I'm going in. He would just turn and crush one out. And I go, wow, how did he know that was coming? And, you know, the, he was really good with that. 
um, Mark McGuire's second half of his career versus me. The first half, he was 0 for 30 against me to start off our careers. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he comes back one year in the mid-90s. And I look, he gets up to the plate, and now he's down lower in his stance. And he had obviously changed something because he used to stand up tall. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? That's weird. You know, nice pitch against me. He started crushing me in the last last half of that. He hit me pretty darn good. So he made his adjustments. All right, finally, before I let you go, uh, you got quite the musical career to go along with the baseball career. So for someone, if they haven't listened to any of your stuff, one album, song you suggest they check out first, what would it be? Well, it's, it's tough to even find them because I wasn't, wasn't put into the mix too much. I know there's only one that someone else posted a long time ago on, on YouTube that's like one of our original songs from way back when, but I got a couple. My last two records are really cool. And, um, you know, I've got a bunch of the CDs that I'm putting out for people that want to check them out. Now. So, you know, they want to do that. The last two CDs, they're actually available on iTunes. Um, but the weird part is there's our band was Stick Figure. And a new band came in and called themselves Stick Figure and took our name. And so we're like almost on their list on iTunes. I've had so many people over the years say, "Hey, you're coming. You're coming to our city to play." And I'm no, we're not. What are you talking about? Yeah, stick figure. I'm oh no, no. It's that other band that stole our name. <laughs> so no, we got to do that. So it's tough to go find our stuff out there compared to them because they're newer and have more records out than we put out. So I guess I'll I'll have to rename the band and put it back out there again. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I thought uh, we learned a lot. Yeah, well, I hope so. I, you know, I like talking about the analytics stuff because I think I got the real answers. Right. Don't just have the fake stuff, and I don't determine stuff. And results. That is sports. Are you rooting for the White Sox nowadays? Or do you well, have or just what, casual I'm thing? not a wasn't not a big Tony La Russa fan, yeah. so I didn't really want him to come here and, you know, just be able to win because he was just given a great team. So, that he was he was not a fan of mine, and you know, I didn't like it. We always fought against him, and so that wasn't you know, wasn't pushing for the White Sox issue really myself. Just kind of watching baseball. Yeah, hey, can't go wrong with that. Thank you once again. Uh, have a wonderful uh, rest of your day. All right, man. Take care.